guess I should introduce myself. Hi, I'm Jack, the donkey. I come from a long line of pretty important donkeys. Throughout the Bible, you can find my relatives chipping in behind the scenes, carrying heavy loads, and being reliable helpers. Do you remember Father Abraham, the guy with many sons? God blessed him with a lot of my family members. What about the story of the twin brothers, Jacob and Esau? They got in a pretty big fight and later forgave each other. As a peace offering, Jacob gave Esau a herd of donkeys. What a great gift! Oh yeah, don't forget Moses, the guy who talked to God in a burning bush and split the Red Sea. He put his wife and kids on a donkey and entered Egypt with God's staff. Legend has it, a relative of mine, we call her Grandma Edna, was famous for actually speaking to a prophet who predicted the birth of the King of Kings. Can you believe it? It's a long story, so I'll try to make it short. See, there was this evil king named Balak who was afraid of God's people. So he hired a well-known spiritual guy, Balaam, to curse them. The king said to him, You have a reputation. Those you bless are blessed. Those you curse are cursed. But after speaking to God, Balaam realized that cursing the people was not an option. But the evil King Balak wouldn't take no for an answer. He sent princes to offer Balaam an even greater reward, saying, I'll pay anything to curse these people. Balaam knew he had to ask God's permission first. Of course, God did not agree to the cursing, but he did say that Balaam could go meet King Balak with one rule. Only do what I tell you. So Balaam and Grandma Edna went to see the king. On the long journey, Balaam started thinking more and more about all the money the king would give him. God knew his heart was getting greedy, so he sent an angel with a sword to block his path and remind him about what they agreed on. Balaam was so focused on getting rich that he did not see the angel. But you know who did? My grandma Edna, his faithful donkey. Three times she turned away to avoid the angel, and three times Balaam punished her angrily. Finally, Grandma Edna laid down and said, What have I done that you would treat me this way? She said it right out loud, using people words. Weirdly enough, Balaam replied back to her, You have embarrassed me. Now I look like a fool. Grandma Edna replied, I've carried you for years. Have I ever given you reason not to trust me? Then God opened Balaam's eyes to see the angel. Why have you punished your donkey? She saw me blocking your path because your heart was not right. If she had not turned away, you would have met my sword. Balaam was very sorry, and the angel responded, Go, see the king, but remember to only say what you're told from God. So Balaam and Grandma Edna went to meet King Balak. The king took Balaam to a high place to curse God's people. But instead, Balaam blessed them three times. In his final blessing, he spoke of a star that would rise, a promised son, the savior of the world. So you see, God gave many of my relatives some pretty important roles to play in his big story. I was beginning to wonder if I was special enough to be part of it. What would God do with a stubborn donkey like me? While I was busy wondering, God was at work. One day, my owner, Joseph, let me know I'd be carrying some precious cargo, his pregnant wife, Mary. No pressure. He said we were going to Bethlehem to be counted for a census. I didn't quite know what that meant, but I wanted to make him proud. I wasn't sure what the journey would bring, but somehow I knew God was with us. When we finally arrived in Bethlehem, we were exhausted, but grateful that God had provided a safe trip. Just when I thought we would part ways, Mary and Joseph bunked with me and the other animals for the night. There was no room in the guest house. Before we knew it, the time came for Mary to give birth, and I had a front row seat. 
I wasn't quite prepared for it, but I tried my best to remain silent and make space. I even offered my feeding trough as a bed for the little one. When he finally came, I was amazed. There was something so special about him. Everything made sense when Mary and Joseph named him Jesus, which means the Lord saves. The stories about Grandma Edna were true. This was the child Balaam had spoken of many years ago, the promised savior of the world. Balaam's words were once again confirmed when wise men from the east came to celebrate Jesus' birth. They asked, Where is the newborn king? We saw his star rise. The promised star brought them directly to us. But I think we all know who the real star of this story is. Jesus. Merry Christmas Eve, Woodland Hills. God bless you guys. Uh, may it be as merry as possible, given that it's 2020. All things have to be adjusted downward, but really glad that you're part of the service, and I uh, hope you enjoyed that story. Uh, Christmas through the eyes of a donkey. I, myself, couldn't stop thinking about Mr. Ed for some reason. Some of you older folks know that. Wilbur. But uh, yeah, God works through mysterious ways. All right. Um, so we've been following the Advent calendar uh, this year, <clears throat> aching ourselves in a tradition that uh, a- a- antedates us by a long ways. And we do that because we're at a time in our culture and this world's history where everything's kind of up in arms. It's kind of all disheveled. And so it feels good to be doing this in solidarity with the church universal, with the ch- church throughout history. And the theme uh, uh, for Christmas Eve uh, in the Advent calendar uh, is love. Uh, how the Christmas story reveals love. So I want to title this message, uh, God So Loved You. You know the uh, famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, And I hope that you believe that. Uh, But do you believe that God so loved you? He gave his only begotten son. Uh, I'll give you a little warning before I get into this too much. Um, The first half of this message or so won't sound like traditional Christmassy sermons. But hang in there because I think it will pay off with a, Chris, a Christmas a dividend at the end, all right? Uh, my take on, the, on this Christmas Eve service is, is uh, it's, it's, it's a message I've never preached before. Because um, I'm going to uh, talk about Christmas from the perspective of the Gospel of John. Um, now you may be wondering, well, wait a minute, John doesn't have a Christmas narrative. And you're right, he doesn't. There's no birth narrative or whatever. I think because John is writing his gospel as an intentional supplement to the gospels that were already out there. And uh, since uh, Matthew and Luke already have a infancy narrative, uh, he didn't uh, want to double up on that. Instead, he gives a more theological perspective. Um, and by the way, uh, I started going down this track uh, several days ago, uh, and it was Paul's Eddie, Paul Eddie's suggestion that we do uh, Christmas through uh, the Gospel of John. So if this bombs, yeah, you can blame it all on him. All right? If it's successful, however, I'll, I'll take the credit for that. The little that John says about the Christmas story, however, it's only like really one verse, but uh, when you put it in the context of the chapter in which he says that, and then put it in the context of the book as a whole, uh, I think it, you'll agree that it, it teaches us a whole lot about how God's love shines through in the Christmas story and what that says about us and what it teaches to us. Uh, the big strategy I'm using here is that John goes from the very, very large, in fact, he sets it in the largest possible context, uh, in the Christmas story puts it in a cosmic context in order to zoom in to a very particular 
uh, context, and you'll see what I mean here in a little bit. So I want to read from uh, the Gospel of John. I'll read the first five verses of chapter 1, and then also verse 14. In the beginning, he says, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was himself God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him, in the Word, he's talking about Jesus, of course. In him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, praise God. And then in verse 14, and here's his Christmas. Uh, this is all the Christmas you get in John. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Lord, use this message, these words that come out of my mouth, anoint them with your authority and use them to encourage, to refresh, replenish, to heal, to convict, whatever it is we need. Uh, Lord, use these words to address that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So John starts with this cosmic context. He goes back to the beginning, really echoing Genesis 1 here. He goes, he zooms out as far as you could zoom out. And he says, uh, in the beginning was the word. Now the word that he uses there is logos in Greek. And it means, it, it can refer to a thought or an expression, any kind of manifestation. Uh, one theologian I know it says it, it basically means he's the face of God. When God appears, it looks like Jesus. When God speaks, it looks like Jesus. When God communicates God's self, it looks, like, it looks like Jesus. So to the degree that anyone has seen, genuinely caught a glimpse of God, to the degree that anyone has a true intuition about God, well, th what they're experiencing there is Jesus, whether they know Jesus by name or not, to the degree that anyone has any light. The light that they have is Jesus, because he is the light of the world. That's why John says, in this opening context, he goes, this word is his life, and he's the light that enlightens everyone that comes into the world. Insofar as anyone has light, they're getting it uh, as Jesus Christ, whether they know that or not. When John says, in the beginning, he's saying, go back as far as you can, and the word was always there. So the word, Jesus Christ, he's not an, an add-on, a latecomer, or something extrinsic to God himself. He's not some kind of arching angel that was created or anything like that. No, he, he is, he's God. He's the eternal God. And so what we have here is he was with God and he is God. And so we have an eternal God with God. And, and this is why the church came to the conclusion that God is a triune being. In John 1, 1, or in John 1, we only see the Father and the Son, but we, the Spirit's added in other contexts. And so God is love because God is this interpersonal being, this loving being throughout all eternity. And the word expresses this eternal being. And all things, John says, all things that are made were made through him and for him and by means of him. We're talking about God himself. Uh, so he zooms way out. The word is God, capital G, as God as God can be. And this God, he says, became flesh. The word was made flesh. God became a human being. Uh, the creator... <laughs> who spoke all things into existence and who holds all things into existence. And remember, by all things, we're talking about the trillions of stars and the trillions of planets uh, that orbit those stars and every molecule in the universe. This God holds all that in being 
And yet that God zooms down to become a particular human being. Zooms down to become Jesus Christ. He makes his dwelling with us. Uh, the, 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 the literal translation of that is that he tabernacles with us. Uh, the, the message tra- uh, paraphrase says that uh, Jesus moved into the neighborhood. He became one of us and he moved in with us. And so here we find the creator, almighty God. He now becomes part of his own creation. Uh, this one who holds all things into existence, he now becomes a little baby who's going to be held by his mother. Uh, this God who sustains all things now becomes a, a, a little infant who himself needs to be sustained. The all-powerful God becomes a vulnerable little baby. This God who is just blessed in all riches becomes poor. And the God who is immortal takes on mortality since he's born for the very purpose of dying. So the creator God zooms down to one particular, becomes one particular human being. And that zooming down reveals who God is. The word always reveals God. If you look at the word, look at Jesus, you're seeing God. And so he reveals that God's the kind of God who zooms down. He's the kind of God who humbly is willing to go to whatever extreme is necessary in order to redeem people and reconcile all creation back to himself. That's the kind of God he is. What the Christmas story reveals in John, and this is true of the other Christmas narratives, but it reveals a God, a humble God of unsurpassable love, who's willing to go to an unsurpassable extreme in order to redeem human beings. Then notice this. Not only does God zoom down to become a particular human being, but by means of this particular human being, Jesus Christ, he ministers to particular people. First, he's born to a particular mother and a particular father and a particular place in time and a particular place in history. And uh, then he ministers to particular people. Uh, he doesn't just love humanity in general. Oh, I love the human race. No, he loves the person who's right in front of him. Uh, and whatever need it is that they have, he uses his authority in the kingdom to address that need and thereby, again, revealing God's love. But it's always particular people. He fellowships with particular people. And in doing that, he's revealing something profound about God's love. And that is that God's love is always particular. Uh, we use the word love in a lot of different ways. You know, so oh, I love my dog. I love my wife. I love my, you know, I love the human race. We, we speak that way. But the truth is that when we're talking about the deepest kind of love, agape love, the kind of love that God is, it's always particular. It's always particular. Uh, I love my wife with agape love. Honey, I love you. Uh, but I, in loving her, I, I'm not just like loving humanity in general. I love you because you're part of the human race. That's just, if that's as good as it gets in marriage, you're in trouble. Uh, nor do I just love her because uh, she's female. <laughs> There's a lot of females that, that don't love in that way. Uh, but so I, it's like, oh, honey, I love you because you're female. That doesn't say much. Or even because you're a particular kind of female. That doesn't say much. No, in loving my wife, I love her in her particularity. I don't love her via some category or you know, some description or something like that. There's nothing abstract about it. It's concrete. I love her. I love her peculiarities, her little eccentricities, the, the, the way she is crazy around our dog. And I just have a million things I could spend a year telling you about. But it's particular. It's sui generis. It's one of a kind. It's unrepeatable. It's tailor-made to her. And that's what love does. It pays attention to the particular. God being God of perfect love, he loves people in particular ways, not general. He loves you 
in all of your particularity. It doesn't say that he loves everything about you because you maybe have stuff in your life that's damaging and, and, and that's what sin is. Uh, but he loves you in particularity. Not just because you're part of the human race. Okay, now having said that, I want to add something and initially it won't be clear why I'm saying this, uh, but uh, it will become clear in a moment. I want to jump ahead to the resurrection. Let's go, let's go, let's have a preview of Easter. And this is from John chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 3. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb where Jesus had been laid and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Now there's a whole lot of really interesting things that I could say about this passage, but for our purposes here tonight, uh, there's only one thing I want to say. And it has to do with this phrase, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. He's referring to John here, and John's the one who's writing it. So John writes here, and actually five times in his gospel, he doesn't ever refer to himself by name. He refers to himself as the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, I have several times in the, my career here at Woodland Hills Church uh, poked fun at John for this because uh, I've always interpreted it as being sort of a sign of arrogance. And you find in the Gospels that John did have a kind of an arrogant streak in him, okay? He's, he wanted to sit next to Jesus when the kingdom comes and all this other kind of stuff. Called on fire from heaven, whatever. There's a kind of a strand of arrogance there. And so I, I thought this is his way of kind of just uh, making public that he feels that he was Jesus' favorite. Felt he was Jesus' favorite. And what I liked about that is that it's another example of how God uses us in our faults. How... Um, he doesn't perfect people before he uses them, even before he breathes through them to write scripture. He takes them as they are. And I saw this as just one of the human characteristics that God leaves in place because he's not going to coerce John out of it. And that may be true. But this last week, as I was talking about possible things to, to preach on for the Christmas Eve service, Paul Eddy, who had this idea in the first place, um, pointed out to me that there are some scholars who disagree with that. And... Uh, Share with me that some scholars argue that John here is saying that he's the disciple whom Jesus loved, not to try to exclude anyone else, but simply because he's reporting his experience of the love that he receives from Jesus. And what he's, re what he's reporting is that he doesn't feel love because he's among a group of people that Jesus loves. He's not one of the crowd that Jesus loves. He's experiencing Jesus' love as a, a particular kind of love, a love that is just for him. It feels to him like like he's Jesus' favorite because he's not loved as part of the crowd. He's loved in his uniqueness. He's got a one-of-a-kind love. He speaks as though he's the only one that Jesus loved, but it's just because he experiences that way. He's not trying to say that the others aren't loved that way. And according to some scholars, Paul tells me, um, John does that to invite the readers to insert themselves into that position. A way of saying, you all are the disciple whom Jesus loved. We all should have an experience of being special to God, of having a unique relationship with God, of having a kind of intimacy that isn't general or abstract, but it, it's an intimacy between you in particular and him in particular. And so John's inviting people to, to assume that sort of perspective. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, Paul, I'm just I'm not convinced, but um, here's the thing. It, it strikes me that that is maybe 
and I could change my mind on this, but it, seems, it sounds initially as like it's, it's too sophisticated for John. Sorry, John. Uh, and, and it's too humble for John. It, it doesn't, I don't know. It's, it, but it's not too humble. It's not too uh, sophisticated for God. And God is the one who's breathing his word through John. Now follow this. Often biblical writers, you'll find that they, they write more than they knew. And that's because they're not the only author writing. God is breathing through them. And God can fill words with meanings that, that go beyond what they're, what they're able to understand at that time. So for example, in Isaiah 9, uh, we have that wonderful passage about, Unto us a child is born, a son is given, his name will be called Counselor, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, now, a lot of scholars argue that in the original context, it's most likely that Isaiah was thinking that he's referring to Hezekiah, this future coming king. And that's possible. But now that we, you know, 2020 hindsight, hindsight is perfect, and so now we see how Jesus fulfills this much better than Hezekiah ever could dream of fulfilling it. And so we know that the passage primarily refers to Jesus, though it's possible that Isaiah had no idea about that. He didn't know about Jesus or, or that. He had a concept of coming Messiah. He might have thought Hezekiah was it. But uh, so God can breathe through folks in a way that their words have more meaning than they realize. So God could take, even if John did speak this out of arrogance, I'm the one who Jesus loved. Well, there's a, there's a true dimension there, even if he's not quite capturing it. And, and so I, I can see God using this to do exactly what some of these scholars think that John was doing, whether or not John himself thought that they were doing it. So what he's saying here is that we all should have, and this is the truth of things, we all should have a relationship with Jesus and with God through Jesus that is unique to us, that is one of a kind. Um, we often talk about the importance of community, and that is so important, that our lives are embedded in community, and that we worship together, and we're the part of the corporate bride of Christ. And there's this communal dimension that is so important we should never get rid of. But what balances that out is we also, each of us, need to have our own intimate relationship with Jesus, where we bask in his love and where we feel like we're the only ones that ever received this love. Like, like the, the, he, we're the only ones he ever created. As though all of his love is directed towards us. Because it is. Think about this. If you agree that God's love is unlimited, and I hope you do, there's no limit on God's love. God's love is infinite. Well, you can't divide infinity. Half of infinity is still infinity. Um, you can't divide it up. So God's love doesn't need to be watered down to cover the number of people that God loves. If God's love is infinite, then it is true of each individual, however many individuals there are, that it's as though God, all of God's love is on this one individual. And all of God's love is on this individual because God's love doesn't need to be watered down to cover the number of people who, uh, who, 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 who he loves. And I think we enter the most profound and the most healing dimension of God's love, the love that this Christmas story is all about. We enter that most important dimension when we understand that we're not just loved as part of the crowd, we're loved in our uniqueness. And Jesus did all this for you and for me. Christmas wasn't just about God so loved the world, though that is true. But can we now see that God so loved you? This was for you in particular. You aren't the recipient of part of God's love. No, you are the recipient of all of it. Every ounce of God's love is directed towards you. In fact, I'd say the same thing about God's attention. Because God's attention, his intelligence is, is infinite as well. And he doesn't have to water his, his attention down to cover uh, the number of people or number of things he has to pay attention to. So it's as though all of God's attention is on you and all of God's attention is on me. 
He doesn't have to divide it up. So imagine that. It's not just a fragment of God's love or, or an echo of God's love. You're getting God's love in all of his beauty and all of his power. All of it is directed towards you. You are right now the object of God's unsurpassable, perfect, unimprovable love. And you'll never be more loved than you are right this very moment. And someone out there is probably thinking to themselves, well, gosh, no, I, I just last night really blew it and sinned terribly. That maybe it's true, but it doesn't affect God's love. God's love is bigger than that sin or any sin that you might throw uh, his way. All, all of the Creator's love is zoomed in on you as though you were the only one that God created. So while it's true that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that's, celebrate that fact. It's wonderful. But we also need to get in on the truth that God so loved you. He gave his only begotten son. Uh, it's true that God became a human being and died for all of humankind, but do you know that God became a human being and died just for you? Because he loves you in particular. It's true that Christmas morning is about how, you know, Jesus came, was born as a baby in order to bring joy to the entire world and re redeem the entire creation. Yes, yes, yes. But do you know that Christmas happened for you? Because God loves you and wants to redeem you. He would have become a human being and he would have given his life just for you. Think about it. If you, if you have trouble accepting that, because you just don't feel like you're that important, that significant, who am I? Why would God do that? But think about this. If that's not true, then what's the alternative? Uh, was there a, if God wouldn't have come just for you, well then who would he have come for? How many people would have had to be lost before God decided it was important to come down, right? Uh, maybe... Ten, hundred people, a thousand, a million maybe? At what point would God say, okay, now there's so many people that are, are, are going to be destroyed if I don't come and do something. I guess now I'll come in. Well, see, that's not perfect love. That's a calculating love. That, that doesn't ascribe unsurpassable worth to anybody. It's, it's, it, 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 it ascribes partial worth to everybody because there has to be a sufficient number of people before God decides to do something. No, that's not God's love. God's love is perfect. And it's particular. And what he did on Christmas, he did just for you. The fact that he also did it for everybody else doesn't change the fact that it's as though it was just for you, as though you were the only piece of person that ever sinned or the only person that was ever created. And see, I, I, I just think that that is that dimension, that one-of-a-kind relationship that God wants with us, that, that ultimate intimate relationship that God wants with us, our souls are starving for that kind of love. Your soul's starving to hear it's worth to, 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 to receive the life that it was created for, to know that you are loved with a perfect, everlasting love by your Creator and your Savior. Yes, God so loved the world, but what feeds me is when I can experience God's love for me in my particularity. When I can see it in His eyes and I can hear it in the expression of His voice and I can feel it in His, in his embrace. And sometimes when I spend time with the Lord, I actually imagine that I am the only one he ever created. Because even though I know that God's love is uh, you know, not diluted by the number of people that it, 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 it's, it's directed towards, it's still hard to fathom that. But when I think about, there, there is a space that's just for me and Jesus. And, and it's, we used to sing this song in, in my old Pentecostal days that was kind of sappy, most of our songs were, but this one had just a profound refrain in it. Uh, it says, he walks with me and he talks with me. Some of you guys know this song? And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there is like no other has ever known. Uh, 
there's a dimension that we can have in our relationship with God where it, it, it can feel sometimes like no one has ever experienced this before. This is as beautiful as it gets. There's a sense in which we should experience that we're God's favorite. We are the disciple uh, who is the beloved, where we experience that all of God's attention is on us and everything God did, he did for us. And we celebrate that and must celebrate it as a community all the time. Wonderful. But we also need to celebrate it as an individual thing that uh, applies to each one of us. My soul is hungry for that uniqueness, to know that I am loved, not just as part of the crowd, not because I'm part of the human race, not because I'm part of the church. I'm loved because I'm me. And I couldn't be more loved than I am as me. And you couldn't be more loved than you are as you right now, this moment. Now, now some people, that makes, <laughs> makes some people feel uncomfortable. In fact, to be honest with you, uh, uh, there's been, early on in my walk with God, I, I, I often felt uncomfortable with this. Um, that kind of intimacy is kind of scary. Can be. I was, and I think probably a lot of you are like this, where I, I was perfectly comfortable being the anonymous part of the crowd that Jesus loves. I, I belong to the crowd, and I, I'll stay here, and I, I kind of ride along with everybody else. But you don't have to have this complete bearing of your soul and, and looking into each other's eyes and all that kind of intimacy stuff. I was comfortable with being loved as a disciple, but not loved as the disciple. I mean, we give lots of reasons for this. You know, it's like... Uh, to say that all of God's love is directed towards me, it's, it's, well, maybe that's true of others, but it's not true of me. It just doesn't feel true of me. Or maybe you're thinking, here's another one of those things that Boyd preaches that just seems too good to be true. That'd be nice, but it just seems too good to be true. Or, or you think, I'm just so insignificant. It feels prideful for me to, to say all of God's love is towards me. Or maybe you're thinking I'm too sinful, or, or I don't pray enough, or I screwed up too much, or whatever the reason is. So what, it's, it's kind of like uh, the first Christmas morning, you know, God gives us this incredible gift, the gift of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. And, and, and that gift includes the offer of being loved as though you were the only one that God had to love. But we have, so we have this gift and, and we're happy for this gift. We, we celebrate this gift. But as long as we're just celebrating the gift as God so loved the world, we're not really opening the full gift. It's like we've got these obstacles, these lies between our head that keep us from really opening the gift and applying it to our own life. And it's, it's, it's the enemy's strategy. Here's the thing. That gift is pure truth. The gift of Jesus Christ, he is the way, the truth, and the life. That's why John said that he was full of grace and truth. This is the truth about who God is, the truth about who you are, and the truth about everybody else in the whole creation. It's pure truth. And anything that keeps us from fully applying that truth to our life is a lie. And so we have a big decision to make. And the decision is who are we going to believe? Uh, what story are we going to live into? Uh, we can decide to believe the word. Uh, and what God says about you is true regardless of how you feel. Or we can choose to believe the lies, the lies that we've inherited from the world, that that can't possibly be true because of this, that, and the other thing. What are we going to live into? To choose to believe the word <clears throat> means that we're going to celebrate Christmas not only as God so loved the world and joy to the world, but God so loved me and wants to bring joy to me and to every individual and in the particularity of who you are. It means that we create a, a space in our relationship with God and to intentionally create a space where you just hang out, the real you hanging out with the real Jesus. And, you know, when we die, and certainly at the last judgment, uh, we will be, as they sometimes say, naked before God, just totally transparent. Nothing's going to be hidden. 
And I encourage us to start practicing that now. And that's not supposed to be a scary thing like, oh no, my sins will be known. It's supposed to be a good news thing because it's it's a way of saying we are going to be so intimate with God. Um, He wants that intimate relationship. Paul even likens it to the relationship between a husband and wife in Ephesians chapter 5. He wants that. I encourage us to prepare for that in our times of being with God right now. Just you being the real you, letting Jesus love you as you are. And, and here you know all the truths about you and about everybody else in Scripture, but you need to hear it applied to you in particular. Yeah, I, I, I so love the world, but do you know, and now hear your name, that I so love you, uh, that you are a delight to me. I sing and dance over you. I rejoice over you. You are the apple of my eye. And so just resolve that as you let God love you in all of his fullness, pouring his love upon you, when those thoughts come up, when they arise, oh, that can't be true, I'm too insignificant, I sin too much, I don't pray enough, I blah, 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 blah. Just calmly resolve to set that aside and turn your eyes back to the truth, the truth of who is Jesus Christ. And if, 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 if you hear uh, <clears throat> a voice in your head that says, come on, you're too sinful, here you remind yourself and the Lord may speak to you if you're open to it, that his, your sin is no match for his love. And see, it's only when we allow that love to get in, in the midst of our imperfections, our faults, our sins, it's only then that we give God a chance in that love to grow us out of that sin. And so hear the Lord say to you, uh, your, your sin does not lessen my love for you as though my love was conditional. No, I, I, I love you with a perfect everlasting love which is why I want you to be, get out of this sin. And if you'll just let me love you in the midst of your sin, that is what will get you out of your sin. That's how we grow. The love of God transforms us. So right now, I, I, I would like you just to close your eyes for a moment. And however this works with you, uh, I, I, I encourage you to envision the eyes of Jesus. Jesus, you know, they say the window, the eyes are the window of the soul. And I would like you to look into the soul of Jesus and let him look into yours. Now, if you're wondering, like, gosh, how do you imagine Jesus' eyes? Well, look at the, imagine your brother's eyes or your dad's eyes or anyone's eyes. Can you see those eyes? Well, Jesus' eyes are just like those. Uh, It's just that these are the eyes of your creator. These are the eyes of your beloved. These are the eyes of the one who knows you better than anyone ever could and loves you anyways. These are the eyes of the one who all of his attention and all of his love has been on you from the very start. Look into those eyes. And, and if you're seeing anything other than perfect, pure love, you're not quite yet looking into the right eyes. Ask the Spirit to help you. And as you gaze into those eyes and allow him to gaze into yours, can you hear him say, using your name, I love you with an everlasting love. I delight over you. Christmas was for you. It's all, it was all about you. And I want you to enjoy that. You're my favorite. You're my precious. Uh, you're my only In fact, I love you with the same love that I love my only begotten son. Because Jesus tells us the love that he received from you, he now gives to his disciples. He loves you in particular. Holy Spirit, teach us how to be intimate with Abba Father through Jesus Christ. Teach us to open up our soul, to let that love come in. Teach us to dare to believe that the good news is as beautiful as the good news actually is. Teach us to dare how to believe that we're the apple of his eye and he loves us as though we were his only. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
Amen. The good news is really good. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, okay, now's the time when we're going to uh, light our candles. And, and uh, so if you haven't yet, quickly go get a candle. It can be any kind of candle. Birthday candle, doesn't matter. It's the symbol that, that matters. And uh, we're going to play a little video of, of folks uh, who are part of Woodland Hills lighting their candles uh, all around the world. And so as this is going on, feel free whenever you feel so led to light your candle. Uh, it's an expression of your hope that you're looking forward to the coming of the Lord. Um, so let's watch this together. It perhaps doesn't quite look like we've done in years past, where we all had, we're in the same room and lighting our candles together. Uh, and we'll get back to that, and we miss that. On the other hand, there's something beautiful about this, uh, where we're sharing this moment with other members of Woodland Hills around the world. We had one lady there from New Zealand, others from uh, Arizona, and there's, there's a unique kind of beauty uh, about that as well. We share this hope. Uh, the light continues to shine. The light will redeem the world. The light will reconcile all things back to God. The light of Jesus Christ does that 
globally, and that light does it with every one of us individually, and we praise God for that. I want to end with this book from the Common Book of Prayer, a prayer that uh, various Christians are praying around the world on this Christmas Eve. So just join me with this. So God of Elizabeth and Mary, you visited your servants with the news of the world's redemption and the coming of the Savior. Make our hearts leap with joy. Fill our mouths with songs of praise that we may announce glad tidings of peace and welcome the Christ in our midst. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Christmas. Uh, Stay tuned in and we'll see you next week. God bless.